Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Vanningen. And this is Poetry for All. And today, we've got an extraordinary New Year's poem by W.S. Merwin to share with you. But before we do that, we wanted to talk about a great podcast that you might like if you like this one. It's a podcast about life and art run by the Financial Times. And here's just a little bit about it. Do you ever wonder what exactly was off about Ridley Scott's Napoleon? Or why Dolly Parton's new rock album is impossible to dislike? I want to tell you about a new culture podcast from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. On Monday, I interview a guest about life and how to live a good one. And Friday is a chat show about art. Two FT journalists and I dig into a new release. Join us by searching for Life and Art wherever you listen. So that's just another podcast for anyone who's interested in culture, life, the good life, all those good things. Okay, and so now let's talk about poetry. Poetry. A- yes, our favorite topic. <laughs> our favorite topic. Yes, uh, Abram, would you be willing to read W.S. Merwin's To the New Year? Absolutely. To the New Year. With what stillness at last you appear in the valley, your first sunlight reaching down to touch the tips of a few high leaves that do not stir, as though they had not noticed, and did not know you at all. Then the voice of a dove calls from far away in itself to the hush of the morning. So this is the sound of you, here and now, whether or not anyone hears it, this is where we have come with our age, our knowledge such as it is and our hopes, such as they are, invisible before us, untouched, and still possible. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I want to applaud. (laughs) (laughs) I love W.S. Merwin so much, I can't even stand it. That was a great reading. Beautiful. All right, right. so why do you love W.S. Merwin? What is it about Merwin that you love so much? Oh, I love his spirit. I love his spirit. I love his consciousness, his sensibility, how utterly transporting he is with such simple, accessible language. He spent his entire life as a model of, of attention and focus and listening. I mean, all of his work shows that, and not just his own poems, but in his translations, and not just in his writing, but in his ecological uh, way of being in the world. Just a magnificent person in every way, and I, I just admire him so much. Yeah, I want to jump into his life, his biography, because I think it really affects how we listen to his poetry and the way we make sense of it. But just And the point that you make about his attention and his attention to the world, Mm. this poem itself comes from a book he wrote called Present Company. In every poem in this book, there's like 100 poems in this book, everyone has the same kind of title. They're to something. So basically what he's doing is walking around the world, noticing things, paying attention to things, and then addressing them. So Mm. the book starts to this may to the soul, to a reflection, to the face in the mirror, and so on and so forth. And so it's just a whole bunch of almost like odes or addresses to everything that he's noticing and paying attention to in the world. And as a book, it is basically asking us to pay attention. That's beautiful. And there's a couple of things I'd say in response to that. The first is 
the formal rhetorical thing he's doing there is called apostrophe, right? It's a mode of address in which the poet addresses a you that isn't present or can't respond, right? So the new year doesn't have a voice. It isn't a person. It can't respond in the poem. So there's an openness there that's really interesting. And the other thing to say is we have addressed this on this podcast a lot of times by now. Uh, The ways in which poets pay attention and are present to things. It's interesting that the title of that book is Present Company, right? I mean, that's a, a, you know, a phrase, of course, but I'm thinking about the presence in present company. So for any listener who is trying to maybe start a new writing habit in the new year, or if you're someone like me who's kind of been struggling to write and you're forgetting how to get back into it, that's the way is with focus on just what's around you, right? And then Mm -hmm. bring it to a whole nother place. And Merwin is a master of that. Yeah, and he came to it through the course of his career. He had a very long career, lived into his 90s, published over 50 books, translations, prose, poetry. He was uh, just a major force uh, from the mid-20th century all the way until just a few years ago. We won't rehearse here all of his many accolades. I mean, he won every prize a poet can basically win. There's no more prizes left to win. They just showered him with prizes, right? Uh, So he he won them all. That's great. Um, But I think it's important to understand sort of how he did it. So he started as a kind of formalist at the mid-century with these sort of very rigid rhyme schemes, very rigid meters. And then he opened up over the course of his career to a very, very different style of poetry. And his, his topics shifted over time, too. And one of the major shifts came at the, the point of the Vietnam War. He had a breakthrough, a stylistic breakthrough with a really important book called Lice, which he published in 1967. Dan Chasen, who's written beautifully about W.S. Merwin's work, he had this quote, and I think it's really worth stating here. He says this, the phrases in the book Lice, the phrases are like driftwood scattered on the sand, which nevertheless suggest the outline of a form. Their dispersal on the page is the source of their power. Oof. I love that quote. (laughs) No, but it's true. And I told you this before we started recording. Merwin is one of my all-time favorite poets. And whenever I am struggling to write, I always go back to his work. I always go back to other poets. There's three poets who I, whom I love, and I've never taught them in the classroom. One is W.S. Merwin, one is Louise Gluck, and the other is Carl Phillips. They are three of my favorite American poets. I have never taught them in class. <laughs> and I think the reason is because... They have this quality of attention that is so utterly arresting. It just stops me in my tracks. And whatever I, whatever gerbil was on a wheel in my brain, <laughs> the gerbil, va- it doesn't just stop. <laughs> it vanishes. And that is a profoundly powerful thing. Yeah, and the three poets you mentioned that you love, I mean, they have... A lot of similarities, but also some pretty distinct differences. And I think one of the differences is the way that they arrive at the kind of attention that they bring to the world. And Mm. so Merwin, for example, arrives there through his study of Buddhism. He becomes a Buddhist in the 1970s. He Mm. moves to Hawaii and he spends several decades not just writing poetry, prose, translations and so on, but also restoring 19 acres of land 
from basically what was a decayed wasteland, he restores it to basically a pristine, natural forest. And it takes ages for him to do. I mean, it just takes decades to get each tree to take. And now it's this it's this major forest of palm trees in Hawaii. And I, and I think one other thing to, to note here, and this relates to the poem that we've got before us, is that part of the work he, of building that forest, one tree at a time, was basically a work of hope. Mm. Um, so you mentioned the book Lice, and that's an anti-war Vietnam book, and it is deeply, deeply filled with despair, disgust, anger. And he has said that he couldn't dwell there, <laughs> that, that after he wrote Lice, he needed something else. And what he found in the decades afterwards was some sense of hope. He's got this poem, um, Casey Sepp, who also writes for The New Yorker, one of my favorite writers for The New Yorker. She notes that he's got this poem that says, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. And that's how the poem begins. And she says of him this, those lines are the manifesto of a man who, for 40 years, planted a tree every day that he could, restoring 19 acres of land, even as it seemed the world might well be ending, first from military conflict and then from ecological crisis. The palm forest, like Merwin's poetry, has become a kind of prophetic stance against contemporary life. Oh, um, so and so, <laughs> and so great. So it's all sort of bound together. Um, his work, uh, his Buddhism, his spiritual stance, his his sort of approach to nature, his attention to nature, and the way, in fact, in which he writes. He writes without punctuation. He writes a kind of flowing, simple, accessible verse that is filled with observation and attention. Not only is the poem fantastic and appropriate for us to read at the beginning of a new year, but his way of being in the world is a great is really inspiring for us to think about at the beginning of a new year. So I'm so glad that uh, you wanted to discuss this poem. All right, so let's discuss this poem. Let's jump into it. <laughs> yeah. So let let's just start. Very simple structure. Uh, if you don't have the poem in front of you, two stanzas or just sets of poetic lines separated by a small bit of open space between them, narrow columns of text, so short lines. And I'm just going to read the first stanza, and let's see what it's doing. With what stillness at last you appear in the valley, your first sunlight reaching down to touch the tips of a few high leaves that do not stir, as though they had not noticed and did not know you at all. Then the voice of a dove calls from far away in itself to the hush of the morning. Yeah. So a uh, uh, couple of things I want to mention in, in terms of um, other things we've talked about on the podcast. The sonnet structure we've talked, this is not a sonnet, but the sonnet structure that we've talked about in the past is often two parts. One is sight and the second part is insight. Mm. So you move from an observation to a kind of wisdom that arises from that observation. And in a certain sense, the two stanzas are mirroring that sonnet structure. And so in the first stanza, you have two things. You have a sight and a sound. So he's observing the, the light coming in, and then the first stanza ends with the, with the call of the dove. And that's it. It's a, it's a kind of observation. It's just a kind of attention. It's a kind of description. But, of course, the way in which things are described does a lot of the work of poetry. In, in many ways, I think this, this poem is made by the first three words, with what stillness. Mm. 
The next words, at last you appear. If, if the poem had started with those words, it'd be a very different poem. At last you appear. As though, you know, I've been sitting around waiting for this new year. Where are you? Ah, at last you appear, right? No, it's with what stillness at last you appear. And so it's, it's a poem based in setting the mood of a kind of stillness. And the new year creeps in so quietly that most things don't even notice it. The trees barely notice it. The dove barely notices it. And we'll find out in the second stanza that human beings barely notice it. Oh, I like the the delicacy that you're describing, that softness. Um, I'm also, I, I like the way you read poems and some, sometimes you're like, well, what if the poem had done this? Or what if the poet, the poet had started here? What if the poem had started with stillness, at last you appear? But it's with what stillness? It, it's the stillness has arrived, but the poetic speaker is able to acknowledge that he's not quite sure how to grasp it or define it or characterize it. You know, I love so I love that sense of the ability that Merwin has to acknowledge what he doesn't know, right? Mm -hmm. That's so important and to embrace it with what stillness at last you appear in the valley, mm -hmm. your first sunlight reaching down to touch the tips of a few high leaves that do not stir. That's really nice. Just the tips. Not it's not this is not a sunlight that's blaring with radiance. <laughs> this is just those very first moments as yeah. though they had not noticed and did not know you at all. But also they don't even know what a new year is. And I love that. I love that he's willing to consider the sentience of the trees. And he's willing to consider that their timeline is not a human timeline, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the first stanza kind of makes that point that a new year is really a human invention. Mm. I mean, how, what makes January 1st different from December 31st? <laughs> Nothing but a human calendar, right? The trees don't notice. <laughs> they don't care. It's another day, another another dawn. The other thing I would point out about this stanza is the use of enjambment. Now, the, the term enjambment means a line that goes on to the next line without stopping. And there is no punctuation in this poetry. And so you can, you can find enjambment all over the place depending upon how you read it. But uh, I would just say this. The reason we have poetic terms like enjambment is because these devices, they pack effects. And so you can create the effect of a new dawn barely seen spilling into the valley by sort of lines that are enjammed that spill into each other, barely noticed in, and flow into each other. And so the style of the poem is doing what the dawn itself is doing, which is barely creeping in and spilling over into this valley. Well, also, you know, when you read it, it feels so, like when you look at it without punctuation on the page, like the way you read it aloud and the way I just read that stanza aloud, we're actually inserting punctuation with our right. voices, but the, it's not there on the page. So that when you look at it on the page, it looks completely untethered and you don't know where to go. So you kind of have to wait and you kind of have to watch to see what he's doing with the syntax. And I think mm -hmm. that that's exactly by design. Mm. All right. Second stanza. So it says, <laughs> it begins. So this is the sound of you here and now whether or not anyone hears it. I'll just stop there for now. What do you notice happening as we turn into this second stanza? I love that, again, Merwin is able to embrace surprise. Uh, I love that the, the second stanza begins, so this is the sound of you here and now, whether or not anyone hears it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is it. And the you, again, just to be clear, is 
the new year. Yeah. Now, this is a mature, poetic speaker. By the time he writes this poem, he's in his late 70s, early 80s. And so so he's seen the new year before, but for whatever <laughs> reason, it isn't until this moment that he's fully able to be present to its sound. Yeah. The, Dan Chasen that we, we mentioned before, he has another great quote about Merwin that I think applies here. He says, simple astonishment, mm. one of the rarest of all literary experiences, is the most potent outcome. In Merwin's best poems, he seems brought up short by his own discoveries. This is a poetic speaker that is doing everything he can to be very quiet and listen very carefully and watch very attentively. His presence, he wants to make it as small as possible. He doesn't want to put his footprints and fingerprints all over the earth and its resources. So he's saying, so this is the sound of you here and now, whether or not anyone hears it, in a world without people, this is what it sounds like, and I'm here to hear it, you know? And then in the middle of that stanza, we get this other kind of shift. So we move from you, the direct address to the new year, to we. This is where we have come with our age, our knowledge such as it is, and our hopes such as they are. Let me just stop there before mm. we hit the last two lines. How do you sort of reckon with that shift in the second stanza from you to we to age, knowledge, and hopes? Only a poet like W.S. Merwin could shift to the hour. It's almost like the royal we. <laughs> <laughs> He's such a boss, you know. <laughs> if, if, if any lesser poet tried to pull that off, uh, it would sound grandiose. It would sound imprecise. It would sound like an inflated ego. It's the opposite with Merwin. Yeah, and I, I think, too, just... What prevents it from sounding grandiose and pompous is that underlying sense of humility, awe, wonder, and sort of discovery alongside of us. Yeah. <laughs> so he is sort of coming to a recognition alongside us and sharing it with us, right? Oh, so this is where we've come. And that's, I think, what helps prevent it from being that sort of pompous, mm. grandiose statement about humanity. And then you get to that the last couple of lines of the poem, and maybe I could just read all of those last mm, five lines together now, though, because I think that connecting yeah. them together is really important. This is where we have come with our age our knowledge such as it is, and our hopes such as they are, invisible before us, untouched, and still possible. There's a way in which this, this poem and the speaker who is poised at this New Year's Day is looking forward to what what is still possible for these things when they are not yet touched, when they are mm. not yet basically fallen. I mean, it, it reminds me in a way of what you said at our last episode about hope. Quote, Jonathan Lear says about radical hope, what makes a hope radical is that it is directed toward a future goodness that transcends the current ability to understand what it is. Mm. That's how I understand the invisible at the end here. It, it transcends our ability to understand what that future knowledge, what those future hopes might be. They're untouched, but still possible. You know... 
I think that sometimes when people think about their apprehensions around poetry or they think about what poetry achieves, I think they might imagine that poetry exists primarily to describe experience. That's not true. Uh, In fact, the opposite is true. It creates experience. Mm. And for me, that could be another reason why it's so hard for me to teach Merwin and why I've never tried it is because for me, he gives me as a reader an experience of the very thing that I try to do. All, uh, my life is like an asymptote, right? Like, like <laughs> you know that line, that X, Y axis? That, oh, yeah. You know, I never really quite understood it, but I remember it from elementary. The X, Y, <laughs> like I get close to a, a state of focus and presence with things like meditation and yoga, but I never quite get there. But he's gotten there. He's gotten there in this poem. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that the experience of being with his voice as he puts those hopes and that knowledge in visible before him, untouched and still possible, that disembodiment, that ability to detach from our investments. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do, but he does it in the poem. And it's it, that's his gift to us as he approaches the new year in this poem. And I love it. Well, with all that said, you want to read the poem again? Yes, I would. To the new year. With what stillness at last you appear in the valley, your first sunlight reaching down to touch the tips of a few high leaves that do not stir as though they had not noticed and did not know you at all. Then the voice of a dove calls from far away in itself to the hush of the morning. So this is the sound of you, here and now, whether or not anyone hears it. This is where we have come with our age, our knowledge such as it is, and our hopes such as they are, invisible before us, untouched and still possible. Hmm. Beautiful. So good. Thank you for reading that. And thank you to the Wiley Agency for granting us permission to read this poem today. To learn more about W.S. Merwin, you can visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. Although, really, I mean, you don't need to rely on our website. I mean, he's everywhere on the Internet. Just look him up. You won't be disappointed. We also encourage you to borrow or purchase any one of his dozens of books of poetry. And as I said earlier, his translations are absolutely remarkable as well. And please remember to subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. Thank you.